Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name's David Pembroke, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that explores the practice of content marketing in government. This week, our guest is Rose Cameron. Rose is the Director of Innovation, Online and Outreach at Penn State University in the United States. Her work at Penn State focuses on building a student-centred innovation culture while working internally and externally to research and communicate innovative communication methods. But before we get into the discussion with Rose, it's time, as we do each week, to look at the definition of content marketing as it relates to the practice of government communication. Content marketing is a strategic business process that involves the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content in order to meet the needs of a specific audience to achieve a desired citizen or stakeholder action. So that's the definition, and our guest this week, Rose Cameron, has a wealth of experience in the field of communication. Prior to her role at Penn State, she was the head of customer experience and planning at marketing and advertising agency, RAP. She's also worked at Hornell Anderson, Leo Burnett, and Ogilvy and Mather, where she grew to be a global brand strategist and innovator who is certainly passionate about brand building. So Rose, thanks very much for joining us in Transition. It's brilliant to be with you, David. So, Rose, I first came across you as a regular guest on the Beancast, and I, I just love your contributions, and I, I really do want to drill down into a, an insight that you made a couple of weeks ago in that discussion on the Beancast, and if I could uh, recommend the Beancast to all of our audience out there, great program put together by Bob Norp out of New York City where guests such as Rose look at the insights that come out uh, of a discussions around what happens in the world of marketing and advertising each week. So we'll put that in the show notes, but high recommendation there. But Rose, I'm intrigued really about you as much as I am about those insights. And how is it that you have made the journey from a child in Glasgow all the way through to the Director of Innovation at Penn State? Uh Great question. <laughs> you know, nobody ever asked me that. Um, I think that what you get with a lot of Scots, and you probably know that down in Australia because a lot of us went down there, is um, a great deal of ingenuity. And, uh, you know, it's everything from avoiding haggis to <laughs> surviving the UK. Uh, we are a, a pretty innovative lot. And we always ask questions. And so if you look at communities of Scots or in the world, you'll find a lot of people that don't just accept the norm. They said, well, they say, well, why is it that way? Is it really needed anymore? And what do we need next? And so I think that a lot of what's driven me is that fascination and my interest in cultural anthropology and just being amazed by humanity and how far we've come, how far it's possible for us to go. And that just led me to a variety of different careers where I could explore that. I think the very best communicators are exactly 
have exactly that quality. They do have a fascination and a real love of people and trying to understand and engage and, and meet and talk uh, with people. So take us back to your childhood for a moment, if you would, to really understand, if we could, about where you started to feel that this was your passion and this was something that you wanted to do as a career. Well, I've got uh, a father who's an engineer. He's an aeronautical engineer with the U.S. military, with uh, Air Force, and he retired after 38 years. I was actually born in the States, raised in Scotland. Um, My mother uh, has always been a therapist. (laughs) That explains a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) And she's also a poet and a writer. So I grew up in the environment of people who considered education and knowledge to be the most powerful thing, right? And so as a military brat, I traveled a great deal. And as anybody who's listening to the show knows, military brats are some of the most resilient people in the world because you're dropped into a new environment every so many years and you're expected to succeed. You have to find your role. Uh, You have to make yourself useful. Uh, Otherwise, you'd be very lonely. So that made me extremely resilient and very sensitive to things that I just consider to be the norm now. I consider the fact that I can go into a room, appraise a room, figure out how to communicate with people, figure out, okay, these are the different ethnicities that are at play, the different religious beliefs at play. These are the different subjects that will be fascinating to them and immediately be able to have a discourse. And I think that is really, in many ways, what drove me to really look at the area I'm in because it made megatrends and metatrends natural for me. Uh, Having a global perspective just became natural for me because I was raised in a boarding school around a lot of kids that were kind of dumped there by their parents as they worked very dangerous jobs in the Congo, etc. And you just began to understand a different view of the world than, say, somebody who's had the luxury of being born, raised and, and married and had children all in a singular place. So it really gave me huge perspective, resilience, and an understanding of how to work with people. And I thought, I really love doing this. This is a strength. It's a natural strength now from conditioning. And so I just continue to do it. (laughs) Sounds good. But what have you discovered to be the universal truths about effective communication? It's not about you. Number one, uh, effective communication actually starts with listening. Don't tell, try to tell everything all at once. Nobody's going to take it in. The three-point rule. Uh, and always contextualize things in a way that people can understand them. Don't try to talk... Uh, in the academic sense, talk to people as people and always contextualize it in a fashion that's emotive in nature so that people can connect not only with their brains, but their hearts. And how difficult do you find that is for people to, to understand those very simple principles that you've just communicated now? 
You know, the ego is a nasty thing, David. <laughs> it just gets in the way, you know, even with me, but it's so easy to try and sound smart and, you know, use all these highfalutin words and all the rest of it. And the thing is, if you don't teach and if you don't convey the information, it doesn't matter how smart you sound, you have failed. So the most important thing is to connect and connect in a way that's very true to yourself. And that's what very much what I put into my work with brands and what I put into my work with the university. I'm fascinated there by that uh, insight there around teaching because I think increasingly what we're starting to see is that the new marketing really is about teaching. It's about creating connection. It's be, it's about transferring value between uh, you and the audiences who you're seeking to influence. And why do you think that teaching is now so important as part of a, a brand or a government's communication with the audiences and citizens they want to engage with? Well, we're living in a very different world now. And that is a world in which every single individual out there has pretty much had some exposure to gaming. And when you have had experience and exposure to gaming, you have been allowed to be central to the narrative. And you are, if you think about gaming, you're constantly learning and your actions generate a reaction, etc. So we are all in this world now where we feel it's our God-given right to be at the center of the narrative. And that wasn't the case before. It, you know, I'm sure, David, you know, when, when you and I were growing up, uh, you know, you sat there and you kept your mouth shut and you listened to the teacher and they were all knowing and you dictated that work into your essays and you moved on. Uh, now you have a very different student where the student wants to query. They want to say, yes, but that's true in this context, but what about that context? And where they feel that just as much as gathering uh, property and uh, art and cars and all of these physical manifestations of their success, they also want to collect experience and knowledge. So what you're saying there, though, is that it's not just about students, as in academic students, that it's really about everybody that is seeking this, this wisdom and seeking this knowledge. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, if you think about it, David, Thomas Jefferson, when, when he was uh, in the United States, you know, he almost went bankrupt because he bought so many books. And they thought that his <laughs> library was like, had every book of import in the world, right, in the 1700s. Now we realize that the world changes every three months. So if you want to stay relevant, if you want to be uh, a prospective employee that has any elasticity, then you've got to constantly learn to keep up with this world we're living in now. It is not static. And that is a, a key element for people out there right now to stay young, to stay uh, money worthy. <laughs> you have to keep learning because otherwise you're just left in the dust. And a wonderful woman once said to me, because I asked her, I said, you know, advertising can be a very ageist 
industry and I, I said to her, how do you stay so relevant so young? And she's in her 60s and is just admired by so many people. And she said, Rose, just keep your mind open. As long as your mind is open, you are always young. So with that, this is a program that really is directed towards government communications and governments seeking to engage and really governments seeking to apply that precise insight that you've really just um, outlined um, very clearly. So what advice do you have to government and government communicators in terms of transferring messages to citizens? What do you think are the most effective ways that they can do th- do that in this new environment that we uh, that we live in that is now moving so quickly and changing so quickly? I think there's one element that's don't pontificate. People have a very limited amount of time and really they do like information. They love it, but give it to them in the right chunks. Um, keep it interesting. Give them things that they can share with others and contextualize it to their lives. So if you're thinking about very large debates that you're dealing with in government, um, don't try to blow it all out there in one individual piece. Feed it out, contextualize it with real life stories of people and people maybe who are similar to the target that you're, you're after. Um, show them how the community associates with that and is critical to it because there are so many interdependencies that government has to um, foster, feed, maintain. And people, I think, have lost a lot of that. We get so stuck on talking about specific legalities that we forget the repercussions of the impact of one decision upon a whole community, not just an individual law. I mean, how much, David, do we talk about this law and that law and the other law? And yet we, and and we may go to the level of the individual, but we rarely go back up into the community. So if so-and-so is affected like this, then the impact on the community is this. You can literally serialize different topics by explaining first what the definition of that topic is in a, in a very brief three to five point way, then bring it into a real life story of an individual or their family, then contextualize it by its impact on the community, and then along every single one of those narratives, tell people what they need to do to make an impact, to make a difference. Because so many times right now, we're just going, bleh, here's the information. And we're not saying, and this is what you as an involved, and they do want to be involved, they do want to be engaged, member of the community, this is what you can do. And that empowers people and it creates change versus people who just feel guilty or, you know, very self-conscious listening to this and then just want to shut off the radio. So you've outlined there a very clear plan uh, for somebody in a particular government program or area that might um, motivate them to communicate whatever it is that they're seeking to communicate. But how would you then go about taking up that opportunity? How would you operationalize something like that, given that we are changing from a world where in government in particular, 
um, very traditional approaches which have been focused on on the media, producing materials for the media and then, you know, engaging in major campaigns by buying advertising, for example. Mm. Now there is this massive capability that uh, governments can take up where they can create their own video, audio, stills, text and graphics, and they can uh, distribute that content through their own channels and through third party channels as well. And they can then measure and evaluate how effective that is. How would you, or what advice would you give to government in terms of that operation side of things? There is the big picture, but then how do you make it work? Great question. I love this one. Um, where I would start is first, you've got to get your house in order. So you have to look at your calendar and say, what do we think the critical elements are going to be at play this year? What are the topics we want to address? And then create a calendar around those topics that do what I just mentioned, the content, the individualization, the community aspects, figure out exactly what you want people to do. If you're going to convey this to them, what do you want them to do? That means you've got to set up the infrastructure to take their responses, not just push out the messages, but also who are the partners you want to work with to network? Uh, who are the charitable organizations that you're going to link into this and when are you going to link them in? Um, there was a wonderful... Uh, engagement model that RAP actually created that was talking about the currency of engagement. And it wasn't just discounts. What it said is, dependent upon the subject matter and the individual, uh, that currency of engagement could be entertainment, but it could also be information, it could be tools, it could be monetarily related, it could be community related. So build that spectrum and say for this piece of content, we are going to invite engagement at this level or this mix of engagement currencies. And these are the partnerships that we need to set up who could benefit from this so that you have your whole calendar at play. And even before you launch this, do that beta. And then what I strongly recommend to the government is talk to the people. Before you start creating this content, go out and see how it's really affecting people's lives, how they contextualize it, what their issues are, because your perspective as a person with power a person potentially with money is going to be very different from those who are most affected by these decisions. So you really need to understand how they think about health, how they think about economy, how they think about the definition of family before you start pushing your messages out there that quite frankly you think are attuned to them because of some definition of your party, but you may find that in the time between you last talked to them and now, their definition of, say, family is completely different. It, it, it's more to the friends you've collected, your partners, uh, the children of those partners, than it is necessarily what we traditionally perceived. So what is so it? Sorry, Go ahead, yeah, what are the best ways of getting those insights? And a second question to that, just off that answer again, is how do you 
build in the speed and the pace and the ability to be able to to change and move quickly in organisations yep. that are traditionally slow moving? Well, there are some great, great um, tools and technologies now that I've been playing with since about poof, 1994. Um, originally, they came out of MIT and now they are represented by some great companies like MotiveQuest or Blab. Um, and what they are are the ability to not only cluster major areas of debate, but also do anthropological insights off of them. And you can do those very much real time. And if people picture in their minds uh, a screen in front of them where we'd say, put in a topic. Give me a topic, David, any government topic. Uh, say diabetes. Okay, diabetes. So you put in diabetes and these bubbles will appear that actually have different size, which directly relates to how many people are talking about diabetes in this these terms. Um, they will have different colors. That's based on the volatility of the debate that's going on right now. Is it hot? Is it pretty constant? Uh, is, is it the greens fees? And then what will be within these bubbles are the topics. How people are talking about diabetes. Are they talking about diabetes in the terms of pharmaceutical companies and how much money they're making off of insulin strips? Are they talking about diabetes in terms of diet? Are they talking about diabetes with regards children? There are so many different levels of diabetes, right? And what you can see in these new monitoring online anthropological systems is exactly what is being discussed online within what context and the topics that are really volatile. And that is a wonderful way of saying, okay, one of our primary things is going to be diabetes, but we're going to monitor this. And as the topics arise, that's what we'll center the content on. We'll talk about the fact that uh, these seniors with diabetes can't afford the strips because the strips are $250 for the packet. And it's not fully covered by Medicare. You know, that's where you can get those debates. Additionally, um, there are more and more ways to record your constituents and invite them to give you their stories. So if you say, okay, this test strip issue is really horrible, let's reach out and ask people for their point of view on this, then they can record that video for you and you can share it with the world. So it can be far more real time. The challenge, David, is that these systems um, are not easy to implement. You've got, and this is what I think about in terms of government, there's not a lot of people necessarily unless they're in their PR departments whose job is to share out content. And you've got these massive marketing groups within those organizations. How do you reskill those people so that you can start decreasing the amount of spend that you're doing in traditional and increasing the amount of actual content relay that you're doing so that you can do it smarter and smarter and have people monitoring these systems, feeding that through to the writers, the writers capturing it, the people pushing out the video requests, capturing that and pulling it back in. So what were some of those tools that you, you have been using for a while? You said Blab. Blab. Um, it's a company called Blab Predicts. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they do some amazing work. Another company is called MotiveQuest. Uh, both of those are in the United States. Sure, there's the Radian Sixes of the world, but as anyone who can tell you who's do- been doing monitoring work uh, using those types of tools, if you don't know how to do the right queries, there, there's so much data that you could get lost. Yeah. But I, I really think that the governments need to start looking at having systems like this that can organically watch the conversations that are emerging online so that they're not imposing upon their people their own view of these issues, but are rather addressing the people's issues around these topics. Okay, we'll just do a, a slight pivot here. Back to the the insight that really uh, encouraged me to give you a call to see if you would come on, and it was the insight that you released a couple of weeks ago during discussion um, on the Beancast, and it was about the fact that yes, the world's changing and it's changing dramatically, but the point that you made was that particularly in the United States, and it is happening here in Australia, and I know in other markets around the world, that there is a record number of agency of record uh, relationships that are up for grabs at the moment. And it's the brands who are really considering their future and looking at that model. So could you just give us a bit more insight around why that's happening, what's happening, and what's likely to be the future in terms of providing services to government um, for agencies? Wow. Well, what we've been seeing about... About over 10 years ago, P&G made a statement, uh, that's Procter & Gamble, made a statement about how they were going to start shifting their investment in media. And I think in between now and then, what we've seen from a lot of the majors, so Unilever, these are the ones that are in the RFP right now, Volkswagen, uh, Ford, Unilever, P&G, all of these people right now have their RFPs out to media agencies. And I think what they've seen is they've been beta testing things for about, I'd say, the past five years, ten years. They've seen how much or how little the agencies here have been able to accommodate some of their dreams, their what-ifs. They've seen the evolution of net new startups to being acquired by these agencies and very often being killed as that acquisition occurs. Uh, They've also seen their media companies uh, taking kickbacks that they weren't aware of. And building out, I mean, we're still living here in a world, David, where They buy the media in one bulk sum at the beginning of the year and they create advertising that fits that shell. And if we remember back before the separation of church and state of the media agencies and the creative agencies, they both used to live in the same building. And we used to take media and treat it as part of the creative product. And then when they said, oh, you know, we're not making enough money and we're not making, getting greater efficiency of scale because we have multiples within this industry, we're going to break apart from the agencies so we can make more money. Well, what happened then is that creativity and the inclusion of media in the creative product broke away. 
and it became just filling holes. You know, I'm buying this many holes and this many media pieces and you agency and you client are going to fill that with stuff. And what we've now discovered in this age of content marketing is you can't separate them. We want to have this remarkable elasticity where we don't have to buy a year ahead. Uh, we want elasticity that actually leverages the data that's being created by the internet and systems where we can dynamically feed that content to where it's needed. We don't want the limitations of this machine that we've essentially been paying for for all these years. And what they found is even though they want that greater elasticity, a lot of the media houses are not prepared or uh, skilled enough to respond to it. And they have these systems that they want to keep running and that it's dangerous for them to, to break apart. So I think what you're seeing right now is a great many of these major companies saying, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with you agencies trying to show me that you know how to do this when you don't. I'm done with you protecting your model and your infrastructure. I believe that there's something else out there. I believe that there are other agencies that are mature enough for me to invest in and they won't fold underneath the pressures of our organization. And those are the people I want to talk with. That's fascinating. But it's, it would seem also that I think even the most recent numbers, those still have the investment in traditional and legacy media at Oh yeah, eighty-five you percent know, almost is still going into what you've described as you know a broken system. Yeah, and they will continue to do that until they have enough data to prove that where they're investing their money, it will not be so high risk that they'll they'll lose those leads or they'll lose that exposure, right? They're going to have that safety net and maybe right now it's 85 and maybe the year after that it's 75, maybe mm. the year after that it's 65, but it's going down. And how quick and do you think it's going to, to change? Because my, my sense of the way that the world is moving and as you've described it earlier in this discussion, we live in a very quick world at the moment, so that, that could move pretty quickly. Well, the only thing that's hampering people right now, David, is having really the measures of success, having those well-defined. I swear to God that a great deal of the reason people have stayed in the traditional media is that everyone has agreed on what is a good and bad measure and you can justify your investment. And right now with programmatic and with content marketing, we're still trying to feel out, okay, what is the norm for this industry? What are the norms? What, what, are, what is good? What is bad? Where is the basement? Where is the ceiling? How do we measure that? What are the key measures to have so that we can justify the investment in here versus there? Fascinating. That, it's going to be that fa really comes down to it. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating time. And Rose, I just well, I do want to be respectful of your time, but I'm actually also very intrigued about what does the director of innovation, online and outreach do at a very famous university in the United States, such as Penn State? 
I have a great time. <laughs> I really, I have the most magic job. I was going to say, that, that sounds like you could do anything you like. Oh, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> no. uh, what I find is that, and, and I really am blessed to have this job and be with the university where they said, you know what, there is the day-to-day that we absolutely have to get done. There's the support of the students that we're absolutely committed to and the quality of the education that we're absolutely committed to. And that cannot undermine our ability to also look forward and ensure that the quality of education we're supplying is here for the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. And that's why they called me in. And they said, we need somebody who's not just looking down and making sure the work's getting done, but is also looking forward and saying, you know, what are we going to need next? And that's really what I do. I, I kind of open the windows. I let the fresh air in. I say, have we considered this, that, and the other thing? I look from a context that is so not academia. Uh, I look from a context of working with McDonald's and working with IBM and Microsoft and Nintendo and StrideWrite, where, you know, I, I just see things differently because that's not been my only world. And then... I have the ability to take all these wonderful networks that I've created over my career and say, you know, that reminds me of what so-and-so is doing over here in, you know, chemical engineering. Oh, wow, this reminds me of something that's happening over in Portland right now. Or this reminds me of that crazy guy that I met in an art colony over here. And, And connecting those pieces so that we can actually make a bigger and better world that people are more engaged with and where people are continuously learning and that they enjoy that learning experience so much that it doesn't end at the end of a four-year university career, but it continues on through all of their life and through their children's lives so that we make this a better and better world to live in. And that is what, David, is critical to me. So it sounds like you're not just focused in the sort of business area, the marketing communications, that you're actually bringing your insights to the education across a, a wide wide range of areas. Oh, from digital aesthetics to learning design uh, to uh, the technology of education, it's all the way at to marketing because, quite frankly, I'm at a public university. You know, Penn State is one of the top universities in the world, but it's also a public, it's what they call an R1 land grant uh, university. And as such, it doesn't have the money of the privatized institutions. Um, And in many ways, I like that challenge because it's a deprivation strategy challenge. You know, we're, we're not floating around and a lot of money. So it's like, okay, let's not just throw money at it. What's the smart way of doing this? And uh, that's why I actually got involved with the marketing department because Google recently really increased its rates here in the United States. Uh, We also have a horrible situation uh, with the private education sector right now where some institutions haven't necessarily done their jobs correctly and students have called foul. So there are all these questions about online education that have primarily been driven uh, by the private sector. And what we've seen is decline 
and online university usage in the private sector. Uh, the growth sector is actually the public sector. So when you've got a universe of students who are gun-shy and very shy of, uh, you know, very hard-pressing, hard-sell type marketing, how relevant does content marketing become? It's tremendously important. And it, it starts really getting you to reassess your marketing mix and what is really helpful for students. I mean, when students have actually said this year that they're looking more to Instagram uh, to find their next university than they are the university websites because they believe Instagram is going to show them a more real photograph or, or uh, slice of life of the university than the, the polished website will. I mean, that is a tremendous learning for all of us. Indeed. And also going back to one of your earlier insights around some of the challenges, not only for government, but for brands, non-government organisations, not-for-profits, you identified very clearly that one of the challenges is the skill set of the people currently working in communications in those areas. So how are you at Penn State going to start to produce the graduates who are going to be able to... uh, work in in the world of content marketing? I'm so glad you asked that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Because one of the the key areas that we're innovating range right now is in the arena of engaged scholarship. Or like, uh, that's what academia calls it, engaged scholarship. I was going to say, what does Uh, that mean? (laughs) Oh, well, you know, it's to students, it means, oh my God, commitment and and more studying. So they run the opposite direction. The real (laughs) definition is a practical application of what you've learned. Okay. It's hands-on practice. And if we're looking, what do you create when you're at university? David, what did you create? Me, as as, as yeah. a student, I produced yeah. a whole lot of essays and, you know, verbal presentations and yep. that was my output. Look spookily like content, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the cases that we've been making is that a very large part of our content marketing engine can actually be generated by the students. They, they are our story. They are our legacy. So why don't we, and quite frankly, in many ways, they understand the media much better um, than some of the other folks who've been doing traditional for a very long time. So, you know, can we help, the, can the student help us learn more about this arena? Can they help us create that content? Can they help us keep it fresh? So a lot of what we're looking at is not only reskinning the skill set of the individuals within our marketing departments, but also incorporating students into our marketing departments for an opportunity for hands-on practical experience where they learn how to work with these systems and our people learn what's important to them. Fascinating. And Rose... Thank you so much for spending uh, a bit of your time with us today. I think the insights that you've been able to provide our audience, which is an audience that's of government communicators all over the world, that they'll be 
fascinated by that. I think your insights, particularly around, you know, the changing world and this notion of the impact of gaming and how that's changing people's attitude and this this sense of teaching and that that really is at the essence of successful communication in this day and age, that people are looking for information, they're hungry for information, and if we're going to be effective, we have to create value, we have to know, we have to understand. Thanks very much for giving us the insight into some of those tools, and I know people will be very quickly going away. I know I will, straight after this uh, podcast, to go and have a look as to see how that can work. Understanding those insights, those core insights, as you say, that communication, it's not about you. It's about listening. And don't think you have to be the most clever person in in the room. Don't pontificate. Keep it interesting. Make it relevant. So, so much insight there. So much value for the audience. And thank you so much for giving your time to be in transition today. And we will be back in touch so we can have a further conversation as you continue on what I think is going to be a fascinating journey into... um, into the future, really, as you look to explore different ways of educating students of the future. So, Rose Cameron, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, David. You have a great time down there in Australia. Be well. Thank you. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. For more, visit us at intransitionpodcast.com.au.